Hey everybody, I am Tracy and you are listening to Another Round with Heaven and Tracy. Yay! Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm super excited about today's show because today's show is all about immigrant stories. They pop up very, very often in our interviews, probably because we have a lot of brown people on the show, which we are very, very proud of. Don't you know you have an Yoku gap? All the people in my family, they have gap also. For you to close this thing is for you to close yourself from who you are. I came here and I always felt like I had one foot in the East in India or Indian culture and one foot in the West. Knowing that part of them loving me is accepting that they've released me to be someone that they can't understand. Both your stories are incredible, you know, like all immigrants. We have so much angst. They're my favorite type of stories to listen to because as a black American, I love to hear other people's stories of being othered because I know what it's like to to be othered for being a black American person. But that's a very specific kind of experience. And I really, really love hearing other people's stories because we get to see what we have in common. There's a code switching, there's a culture shock, there's the microaggressions. And it's kind of like brown people in America are kind of like one big braid. And each braid is made up of like individual strands. And each of those strands is its own experience. But at the end of the day, you come together and you make this big ass Beyonce style braid that has a mind of its own. This is me trying to say that we have a lot more in common than we know. (laughs) We wanted to highlight these stories because they're important to us. And we know that they're important to you because you tell us that they're important to you. And we really, really listen when you write in and you tell us what you like about the show. And we really wanted to give you a bunch of what you love and a bunch of what you've told us that you really like. And we know how good it feels to hear and see yourself represented. And that's something that the show tries hard to do. And these are some of the stories that you said made you feel the most seen and the most heard. So if you need a break from the current political insanity, which you probably do if you're a human being, sit back, relax, and listen to our beautiful shared experiences. First up, we're going to hear from somebody who very, very quickly became a crowd favorite after her very first appearance. And I get it because as soon as I met her in real life, she was one of my favorites as well. Of course, I'm talking about none other than the one and only Stacey Marie Ishmael, a.k.a. DJ Caribbean Vibes with a Z. Yay! Woo! You know her and you love her because she very graciously steps into the studio with us sometimes to give us all priceless and life-changing career advice. But way, way back in episode 17, we wanted to find out just who she was. So let's backtrack a little since not enough people are profiling you. Profiling you. I'm going to take that on. (laughs) Like... Baby Stacey. Baby Stacey. Right. Like, where, where did you <laughs> I'm sure come everybody, up? I'm sure everybody is listening to your accent is like, hmm. You're like, why do you sound like you're Welsh? Okay. So, <laughs> true story. I grew up in Trinidad. Uh, so, Trinidad's Vigo, the country, but Trinidad, the island. And I lived there until I was like 17. And then I was like, I need to get out of this island. It's really small. Um, and I want to see other things in the world. So I decided like, what is the furthest place that I could possibly go? I was like, let's move to France. Wow. So I moved to France. Yeah. At 17, you just moved to France. My, my mother was not impressed with me, but also not surprised. <laughs> in theory, I went for school. <laughs> I was studying like linguistics and really, really grim psychology. Like if you've never read... I'm, I'm sure, don't read this, but there was, there was a book, I remember it was like my third day in the country and it was like, okay, now we're going to talk about the theory of suicide. And I was like, did I make the oh right my life God. choice? 
I mean, that sounds like an interesting book that I would like, but I don't know if I would. It's by a dude named Durkheim, you know. Yes. That's my jam. Go to your nearest library. <laughs> um, but like that accomplished two things for me, which is like, I don't want to live in France mm. <laughs> and I probably don't want to study psychology. I instead moved to London. At the time, I was like, you know what I'm really interested in? FIFA. <laughs> Which, like, in retrospect, whoo, Stacey. Wow. Somebody should have tapped you on the shoulder and been like, no. Um, what was it like being black in all those different places? Well, in, I didn't know I was black mm. until I moved out of Trinidad. Like, mm. in oh, Trinidad. Yeah, like, coming from a right. black population. You know, I'm like, right. I'm in the Caribbean. I'm what would be called red in the islands because mm-hmm. I have, like, mixed ancestry. Um, I like to say I'm of ethnically ambiguous origin. <laughs> and then I moved to London and they were like, so you should join the Black and Minority Ethnic Society. And I was like, wow. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, and I remember there, I caused a ruckus. I, I caused ruckuses. <laughs> it's a thing. I love that <laughs> phrase. <laughs> so I go, you know, I'm in undergrad and there's the African Caribbean Society. I was like, this is cool. But in the year that I was getting into undergrad, there were a couple of other students from the Caribbean, one of whom you would think was Chinese, like one of whom you would think was Indian, one mm. of whom you would think was like Syrian. Yeah. Because that's how the Caribbean is. And yeah. we rock up at this African Caribbean society meeting and half the room's like, so why are you all here? Like, <laughs> this is not awkward at all. Right. <laughs> And so we decided that we were going to create the Caribbean Vibes Society as like a splinter group. Did you spell vibes with, with a Z? With Damn right, we yes! did. <laughs> <laughs> there may have been a palm tree in the logo. It was like the most cliche oh thing Oh my God, I love it. I mean, it was terrible and brilliant. Vibes. <laughs> but it, it was really interesting because it was the first time I ran smack into being assigned an identity that I hadn't like given to myself. Mm. Interesting. And it was particularly interesting for, you know, because I, I look more like I could belong to the African Caribbean society than the other people that I rocked up with that day. Mm. And I remember a particularly interesting meeting with like the student union, which is sort of like, you know, student government in UK terms, having to explain like how islands are different. Oh my <laughs> God. And that we don't necessarily have the same commonalities as like an entire continent and a, co- and a couple of islands. Yeah. Woo. So... You know, no. th- those are fun times. And then <laughs> whenever I spoke up in class, people were surprised. Mm. Like, I am hella mouthy, right? Like, <laughs> I was like, hey, me talking. And I would run for things in student government and get really involved in student politics. And people would be like, but you're brown. <laughs> How is this happening? The soft bigotry of low expectations. Damn right. I was like, mm. interesting, interesting. And my favorite, the anecdote I always tell and will never forget is... I met it. There was a like a Japanese girl in one of my classes, and she's like, "So where are you from?" The Caribbean. And I could see like the blankness of the state. Like mm. that wasn't even a region that mm. that registered. And so I was trying to explain and contextualize. And I was like, "You know, we're kind of out of Venezuela, and <laughs> you know, we're in the Caribbean Ocean." And she's like, "So do you speak African?" Oh, oh ma'am, my God. <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> So much is like, wrong. I know someone's asked her, do you speak Asian? Like, why right. would you do that? Why would you reincarnate that feeling in someone else? But it was it, it, it was a reminder that, you know, I'm from this small ass island, but I still know a reasonable amount about the world. Maybe mm. because I'm from a tiny little island. But it was it was really just running smack into perceptions of myself that had that were being imposed on me that I didn't I wasn't exposed to before. And it was weird, man. So huh. when you're doing all this hiring for like your news team or just like all the projects you're a part of, like how do you think about the people you're bringing in? 
<sighs> you, think... oh, you also tweet a lot about <laughs> hiring. <laughs> they are like, the best tweet. Go off. SMI rants about hiring. Volume five. So I'm going to use a soccer slash football analogy here for a second. One of the things I think about is how do you create a team that wants to be a team and not just a collection of superstars? You know, so it's like Real Madrid versus Barcelona, where Barcelona is kind of like... <laughs> there, are, there are people on who play for FC Barcelona who are individual geniuses, mm. but collectively, like, it's a different level. Yeah. Right? And I try very hard to make sure that each individual person I'm hiring has unique strengths, but are A, and crucially, not an asshole, mm. and B, like, additive to the team. So they're bringing something that the team lacks, but they're also bringing themselves as a person and an identity who's going to like make the entire team better. And you know, it's, it's so, so important not just to assume that because you come from a minority, you have no like biases. Mm. I think everybody has implicit and explicit things that we're just like, no. And sometimes we don't interrogate like where those reservations are coming from. And so that's like that's another thing I'm really sensitive to, which is that I don't want to, you know, be lazy about my hiring because I'm like, I'm brown, I'll make more evolved decisions or I'm a woman, I'll make more evolved decisions, which is like, com- like not true on, the, on like <laughs> statistically. <laughs> you know? And so I try to be really, really thoughtful and I try to have systems in place to like check any implicit biases that I might have mm. in every stage of my hiring process. For brown women who has gone through life working jobs where she has seen no representation of herself mm. in positions that she may want one day, but she doesn't know if she can like attain it if she's like worth it or anything like what tips would you give that woman as far as like how to secure these positions and just like I don't know what is like general advocating for yourself yeah there you go there you go I mean before any of that it's know why you want it Mm. right so whenever you're thinking about like I want to be doing this is it because other people are doing it is because other people say you should be doing it is this something that you know like fundamentally inside is something that you want to do so last week Misty Copeland was you know, recognized for her considerable balletic talents. Mm. And she became the first black female principal soloist ballet dancer. Did I get yes. all did I got all of the adjectives? Oh my God. <laughs> the American like ballet theater. And she was quoted by the New York Times as saying one of the things that she, you know, was worried about is that if she didn't get that promotion, mm. people there wouldn't be another ballerina like her for like mm. two generations. Oh and there, gosh. you know, and nobody would be there to inspire young black girls who wanted to be ballet dancers, they would never see somebody who looked like them on the stage. What she struck at was really interesting, which is that sometimes you feel like you have to do things that you don't even want to just so other people feel oh, motivated absolutely. to. Uh, <laughs> you go to like a lot of conferences and panels and yeah, shit. I you know, know, it's like that emotional labor of representing all yeah. the time. <laughs> this is the number one reason I do panels. And you're like, <laughs> this is something that Kaya was talking about when she was on the show, right? Mm. Like never being able to just be like yeah. Kaya. And the Kaya that I'm talking about is Kaya Thomas. I think 1920. Yeah. I don't know. She's the coder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was fantastic. Yeah. When you are the only one or you're the first one or you're one of very few, you sort of feel like, I got to do this thing. Got to bring my A game. Every damn day, because you like you you know a standard is being set, and so like maybe the next time somebody who sees somebody looks like you, they'd be like, oh yeah, we should give them a chance because that other one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, was also really good. And so knowing what your motivations are is super important. Mm. And then there is almost always a community that you can find and join that will support you. Mm. And that I think is something super important. Like even if you feel like it's only you, you know, like when I was 
the brown person in my philosophy class. I was like, there must be other people. <laughs> yeah. And and you you go out and you find them and like sometimes it's in the library and they're reading the same book and you just like happen to sit near to them. <laughs> You're like, are you in that other tutorial? <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about Plato? <laughs> you have to be willing to be vulnerable, which is sometimes at odds with having to like appear to be badass all the time. <laughs> so those those things are really in contradiction. And then remembering that this is hard. Right. This is hard. Like being the underrepresented, underrepresented person, being the being the minority, being from the person from a background who's not like anybody else's. You run into things, the microaggressions, like the like the invisible, the code of conduct that nobody told you about, the rules that everybody mm. else is playing by that you're not privy to. This is hard and it is exhausting mm. and it will stress you out. And that is a totally legitimate response. Mm. And you have to not be so hard on yourself when you're mm. like, am I doing everything wrong? Like, I don't understand. Why mm. is this so hard? Uh. It is hard because it is hard and not because you are like not good. I'm about to cry. It's <laughs> <laughs> too much, guys. It's so real. It's so real. So that was Stacey Marie Ishmael keeping it all the way real as I think that's the only way that she knows how to keep it. It's all the way real. She always delivers there. Stacey is in California right now being a brilliant genius at Stanford this year, but we promise to have her back just as soon as we can. Stacey, we love you, girl. We miss you. Come back. Next up, we're going to hear from A1 Mr. Anil Dash, who is currently slaving away in the tech world, trying to make it more inclusive, not just more diverse, because there's a difference between the two. So we wanted to hear about how Anil ended up where he is doing the thing that he does. And he began his story with the story of his parents moving to America and working in the transportation industry for 30 years. Both your stories are incredible, you know, like all immigrants. But like my dad came and got his PhD in the 60s and helped work on the foundation for Disney World as a civil engineer. And what? Like, yeah, it's crazy. And like the the airport, Hartsfield Airport in Atlanta. And Wait, like, does he get like free? No, he doesn't get anything. He was, he was like a junior engineer, like just out of school. Mm. But like he worked on these things and... <laughs> Everyone's so trying like, to get a ticket to Disney. Yeah, the really. foundation upon which <laughs> it's built the swamp. That's why they're like, we need some good ass engineers. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go. And then it's like, it's 1964, and he goes to Florida, and he's like, they won't let me go into this barber shop. Like, I don't mm. know what's Whoop. going on. <clears throat> and he didn't know, so he's like, welcome to America. Here you are. Um, I know you've seen Master of None. I have. They have this great parents it. episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> same. Same. Do you feel like you have? St- uh, like the parents episode was all about, you know. Oh my gosh! The yeah. stories you learn about yeah, your parents. Man, that was pretty crazy. What my dad was talking about working at a zipper factory. I never knew that. You know something about your dad's backstory? I mean, I know the big points. He was poor. He was in another country. It was tough. Then he came here. I mean, you know, I got the gist of it. Wasn't that the gist of every immigrant story? That it was hard. Shouldn't you care a little more, being that he's your dad? Yeah, but again, he doesn't talk much. I once found a photo of him in the military, and he just goes, hard time, and then, like, walked into another room. It's pretty crazy. All of us first-generation kids, we had these amazing lives. It's all because our parents made these crazy sacrifices. And we never thank them. Like, we do nothing to thank them. Shouldn't we do something? Yeah, like a gift or something? I mean, what would I get my dad for a gift? He doesn't really have any interests. I mean, he likes drinking water, staying hydrated. I could get him a gallon of water as a gift. Is there such a thing as a water of the month club? Hey, what if we took him out to a nice dinner and learned more about their lives and just said thank you? 
Yeah. Have I mean, your parents sure. opened up? <laughs> Are yeah, they yeah, still my not folks talking? came to visit, and I literally was like, I'm putting TV on. You're going to watch this. And mm. they're like, we don't. Oh, you watched it with them? Yeah. And they were oh. like, we don't want My dad fell asleep. And because okay. <laughs> dad. <laughs> Accurate. Yeah. And, and my mom was a little, because like, I actually forgot there's like a the scene where he's he's at that Think Coffee down on, on Broadway, and he was like, he's doing an uh, audition, and he's yelling like, and I don't actually curse in front of my mother. And so he's, you know, Aziz is like shouting, you know, obscenities at the top of his lungs. And my mother's sort of like very like, oh, dear, what is this thing you're making? <laughs> and I was like, no, stick with it, Ma, stick with it. <laughs> and, and, and then they get into the heartrending, you know, kill your chicken part, which mm. if you haven't seen the episode, there's a story of his friend who's saying, you know, uh, his dad was forced when he was a kid to, to kill the family chicken because they had to eat it for dinner. And like, I like it was a goat, but like I know that story, and everybody I know knows that story. Real, yeah, like that is the realest. Like, like, yeah, totally. And so it was so resonant, and I mean, just so powerful. Of like, there's an Indian dude on screen. I waited my whole life, Mm. my whole life, that one of us could be the star and have a sex scene, and it's not played for a joke, Mm. and uh, put your parents on and treat them with respect, and they're not played for a joke. Like just that much. I didn't even care about the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Like it could have been like an eight minute show and been done on one episode. And I would have been like, we made it, ma, we made it. Mm. So what did your mom think? Uh, she's like, that was nice. <laughs> you know, like, Yo, peak immigrant like, mom answer. Yeah, like Asian mom is not going to give you that much. <laughs> so, I mean, did that episode, watching that episode with your parents, um, did that spur any story sharing between no because i that's sort of what i do with them every time i'm like tell me about the old country tell me about <laughs> tell me about being an immigrant and like i create these narratives where i'm like this very dramatic well against the backdrop of immigration reform yeah. in the 60s <laughs> this is how they got off a plane and yeah. made a life for themselves and they're like we went to work we paid our bills <laughs> like we put you in diapers like there's no you mm. know there isn't well, because immigrants just do it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm the one, I'm the first generation that had the, enough time to sit there and be like, well, what if I told a story? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Storytelling I tra- I is a luxury. I with my parents um, over Thanksgiving break. Yeah. I didn't get anything out of them. Nothing, really? right? Right? And they're just like, we they're just like, got here and then we got to work. Like, for mm-hmm. example, I, my dad was also an engineer and I was like, I know you went to Europe for college for his master's because mm-hmm. at that time they had, they had yeah. interesting programs for that. I was like, what was that like living mm-hmm. in a completely different continent? And he's like, you know, I had a weird roommate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I said to my dad, I was like, Still I was salty like, about it. Dad is such a you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you went, I was like, you went and you, you know, you studied and then you were working in Seattle. And you know, did anything cool happen? He's like, well, I saw Hendrix once. I was like, what? You what? Yeah. And then and they'll casually drop something yeah, like that. Yeah. I was like, well, he's like, yeah, we saw Jimi Hendrix. I was like, what'd you think? He's like, it was good. <laughs> I was like, what? What is it? That, Not what? bad. NBD. Yeah. And then and on to the next. Like, I was like, what kind of life? And it's yeah. like this larger than life. Because like, especially the time my folks came here, like um, my dad came in 63. My mom came in 70 or 69. They couldn't even call home. Mm. You know, like there was no phones. Like my dad's village didn't get a phone until 1993. Mm. A satellite phone was one for the whole village. And they didn't, I mean, and like you couldn't write a letter home to his village. So he didn't talk to anybody he'd ever known in his entire life for the first couple of years he lived here. And I'm like, nah, if you went to the moon, you would have better connectivity. You'd be like, oh, let me right. FaceTime you. <laughs> you know? And it's like, so Damn, you can't, it's true. like just even understanding that you can't, I, I can't fathom it. So if you're saying that in Masters of None, you saw the best representation of you in a series, what is like the next best representation that you've seen? Oh my God, next best. I mean, there's like, Mindy Kaling's got her show and that's like, 
it's funny. Obviously, it's exaggerated because it's comedy, but like, you know, she's like our Jackie Robinson in some ways. Like, she got mm-hmm. a show and her name is on the title and she's a producer and like that's big. Cause like coming up, you know, we had, there was a show head of the class back in the 80s that had a guy, Jawar Halal. And it was like, I mean, Robin Givens was on. It was like, uh-huh. hey, Robin Givens. And then it's like, they got an Indian guy and you'd like look in the corner and be like, oh, eight seconds of Indian dude. And I'm like, right, yeah. right, right. And he wasn't, like he wasn't actively getting beaten up at the time. And I was like, yes, mm-hmm. like that's our guy. And then for like 15 years, the only primetime Indian is Apu, which is like Hank Azaria. Yeah. And I was depressing. like, if we can get enough representation to where I can complain yeah. about it, I would be so happy. <laughs> like, let me get a terrorist up in here. Let me uh-huh. get like some, let me get a computer nerd, something. And, right. you know, and then and like, cause they would put on like ER and I guess eventually they did get an Indian doctor, but it's like, you have a major city hospital with no Indian people in it. Mm-hmm. Like how? That's Fam, science how, fiction. Right. <laughs> like, that's not yeah. even possible. That's never happened yeah. in the last 50 years. Like girls being sent in Brooklyn and there's no black people. Yeah. Around. Or Seinfeld or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like there's this like weird, like it's just, it's yeah, it's science fiction. Anyway. I just kind of gave up. That was the most depressing thing to me. I was just like, we're just not going to have it. Mm-hmm. And I had really, I didn't realize how thoroughly I had come to that conclusion. Mm. And I remember when um, the movie for the namesake came out, Jim Lahiri's book, you know, and Cal Penn was leading in it. And it got released, and I don't know, maybe it broke even or something. Like, I mean, you know, it wasn't a hit, but it did okay. And I was just like, wow, this. Because that book was like, and I think a lot of folks I know that are immigrants that read it were like, oh, I learned things about, like in my case, I learned things about my mother that I didn't know before I read that book by reading her novel. Like what? How they, how they wait for us. How how? And this is a mom thing in general, but I think particularly to immigrant parents is like their expectation around who we are going to be, mm. and how we're sort of thoughtless in trampling their vision of what they thought their child was going to be because they didn't realize they're going to have an American kid. Oh wow. man, this just cut deep. Sorry, this I'm living it. I mean, and I have a son, right? And so I think about that all the time: is how do I not make my honest and good intention desires for him be a burden to him because whoever he is I want to meet and I'm excited about it we are very excited to have Jenny Zhang in the stud poet writer extraordinaire I know how you guys feel about poetry (laughs) (laughs) I like good poetry and I have a good feeling about yours no, poetry should be judged harshly and with standards. Um, I, I'm definitely an oversharer now yeah. as I sit here in front of everybody as a 33-year-old woman, but it's not a thing that I learned when I was writing poetry. Yeah. <laughs> How does your family interact with your art if they do? Like, is yeah. do you worry about like what your family might think or say or what like people that you really, really respect and don't yeah. want to like, quote-unquote let it? Because, I mean, everybody knows that a vulgar woman, quote-unquote, is sure. like scandalous, which I think is ridiculous. So right. how do you navigate that space? Yeah, how do I <laughs> behave like a slattern? <laughs> <laughs> what does that word mean? That's I a great know. word. <laughs> I think it's like what Shakespeare used to describe Ooh. like whores. <laughs> I love Shakespearean. <laughs> like knaves and slatterns. <laughs> I love it. I, I tell myself that my parents don't read it, which is not that delusional because my parents, you know, English is not their native language. So mm-hmm. for my mom, for example... I tell myself that she can't understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyone can Google translate anything. Right. 
<laughs> it's clearly a lie I use to make myself <laughs> do what I want to do. I mean, in the end, it's like um, being shameless is kind of important to me because uh, as like a woman of color in this world, I'm like constantly being told that I should be ashamed. Like mm-hmm. I should have some shame. I should um, accept how other people see me, which is as like someone who's not much, who's not worth much. So I have to be kind of shameless because that it just helps me. And I don't know what my parents think about it. And I don't know why it is that I feel free. (laughs) The first time I ever saw a therapist, she was like, tell me about yourself. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And I was like, well, the most important thing that you need to know about me is that my parents love me unconditionally. They don't understand me, but they love me unconditionally. Mm. And I was like, as I was saying it, I was like, whoa, that's actually true. Like, they don't understand me. And for many reasons, because I did not grow up in the country they grew up in. I do mm-hmm. not speak the language that is their home. Um, they do not speak the language that is my home. They do not know so many things about me. And I don't know so many things about them, but they love me unconditionally. And that's all I could ever ask for. And I feel like for a lot of people, a lot of children of immigrants, they feel that way, Mm -hmm. especially if you are someone with like a lot of ambition who has done what your parents want you to do, which is be really successful and really great. It's suddenly like you're in this world that they can't possibly understand. And that's what they wanted for you. Mm -hmm. You know, they wanted you to be in that world. But it's also sad because now it means there's a part of you they'll never understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for me, it's like knowing that part of them loving me is accepting that they've released me to be someone that they can't understand. Oh, wow. That was beautiful. (laughs) That's getting a little too close to home. just wrote a poem in front of my face. (laughs) We'll be back with more stories in a second. But first, we got bills, y'all. So we are very excited today to have Padma Lakshmi in the studio. Um, she's the host of Top Chef, the author of several cookbooks. She's modeled, acted. She's the co-founder of the Endometriosis Foundation of America, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she wrote about all these things in her new memoir, Love, Loss, and What We Ate. So thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Welcome, welcome. So I want to go back a little bit to baby Padma. <laughs> so you were born in India and you go back regularly. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you described it as kind of a awkwardness and melancholy about going home. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I was four years old when I first came to this country. I came to New York City, literally flew from New Delhi to New York by myself mm. as an unaccompanied minor. You oh, can... my God, me too. You really from where? <laughs> from where? Well, I had my sister, okay. but I was five and I moved to uh, to America from Ethiopia. Okay. Yeah. So and almost just me, as far. Yeah, yeah. And me and my sister are like, is no one going to, we're just children. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> you can never do that today. Yeah, you, you know. cannot. Uh-uh. Wow. It was just what like a really saying? nice stewardess who watched over us. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But I came here and I I always felt like I had one foot in the East in India or Indian culture and one foot in the West. And, you know, within the confines of our little apartment or our home or whatever, 
We were, we are very Indian still, but mm. it was something like when you left that threshold of your house and you went to school, all of a sudden you became an American kid, mm -hmm. but not wholly. You know, I still had this funky name, which frankly is very easy to pronounce now, <laughs> yes. but you know, when I was a kid, it wasn't. And so my mother, who was a single mom here in the city, also sent me back the week after school finished every June for three months out of the year. And so I still maintained very much the language and the culture and, and also a good, close relationship to the rest of my family mm. in South India, in Madras, which is now called Chennai. And my grandparents had gr other grandchildren living with them and, and my mother's siblings and their wives living with them. So it was like eight or ten people in a two-bedroom apartment. Yeah. I'm familiar. Yeah. <laughs> so that I think that also was such so in stark contrast to my existence as a latchkey kid here in New mm. York that I benefited from that in numerous ways that I didn't really appreciate until I was older. I write about being a brown girl in a white world because I think a lot of us feel that way. You know, there are more brown people in the world than there are white. Yes. Way more. Yes. <laughs> but, way outnumber everyone. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, and I think probably when, when we were grandmothers, we may be having... Uh, a very different conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, you mm -hmm. may, whoever's going to sit in your chair 50, 60 years yeah. from now may have someone being like, I just felt like I didn't see any mm. white people. <laughs> you yeah. <know>? Yes. Um, <laughs> my childhood is incredibly important to me. I don't think I could do what I do in my writing or on Top Chef if I didn't have this very specific bifurcated existence mm. because it allowed me to meld the best and worst, I guess, of two cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you say in the book you thought a lot about your American self and your Indian self coming to peace. Mm -hmm. What was that process like? I mean, it was a very slow and arduous one. but um, <laughs> I can imagine. It was actually, it happened in my office. It happened when I was an adult and I finally had a little bit of power to decide what the office culture was going to be like in my office. Mm. And so I brought in some priests and we blessed the office. I mean, I'm not even particularly religious. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm secular and I'm Hindu, but it was more the ritual of it. Yeah. I always tell young women, the money is great. You should try and do well for yourself in your career so you can buy yourself things and give yourself financial security. But it's not the money that's important. It's mm. the power mm. that that money gives you. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, was an important place to arrive at. When I could tell my employees that, no, I understood that they couldn't come to work because they had their period because I have endo too. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we're going to do things a little bit differently in this office. Or bring in elements of my culture that were important to me because they were who I am. And mm. so much of my creativity and, and what I do for a living has to do with who I am. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about the kitchen in your childhood. What was, what was that space like for you? My grandmother cooked on a two-burner stove, mm. and it just had one tiny window. If you look on my Instagram account, which is just at Padmalakshmi, and you scroll down, you will see a picture of me in a blue sari with a black blouse cooking. And that is the kitchen I describe. Aww. It is not pretty. Mm. But it was beautiful to oh, me. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Because on that marble floor, we peeled all the potatoes, chopped all the mango, grated all the coconut, mm. exchanged all the family history, made all of the household decisions, talked about, you know, who they preferred to marry my uncle and why, you know, they shouldn't say it because then that would make my uncle go the other way. You know? <laughs> all the auntie teeth. All, yeah, exactly. All those things. And so to me, it was 
hard. It was so natural that I associated food and femininity. They were、mm. so intertwined together that I couldn't. I didn't. I never separated them.、Mm-hmm. And there were these big cement shelves, and they were really tall. And I would kind of climb up one by one, and they would have to keep moving these pickle jars ever higher and higher, <laughs> because you know I was young, and so you don't want a six-year-old or seven-year-old to eat a bowl of yeah serrano chilies, you know, <laughs> or like really, really heavily spiced, greasy Indian pickles, which、mm-hmm. my stomach lining. You know, my grandmother was surprised I had any left,、mm. and she's still alive, and she still talks about this today. And I climbed up on it, and you know, like a temple monkey, like literally, <laughs> you know, you can't see me right now, but I'm climbing. She's doing a great. I'm miming. A great miming. On the top, I got this one jar, and I had my left hand hanging there, and I had my feet wedged on each shelf. Level and I grabbed this glass bottle and it was slick with oil and、mm. so it just slipped out of my hands and crashed to the floor and because it was a you know tiled or marble tiled floor it shattered and there was、oh. just chilies and yellow turmeric oil everywhere、mm. and glass and you know the the metal lid was still clanging you know like it's like the long taking the longest time to stop <laughs> like you know that like you're not done yet yeah. <laughs> And I'm just hanging there, terrified because I can't jump down because、oh, I'll literally、no. be jumping down barefoot on glass.、Oh, and I, how long am I gonna? Well, the oil. Yeah, I mean, how long am I gonna hang there? And I just didn't know what the heck to do. I thought they were gonna skin me alive.、Oh. <laughs> and and then you know, luckily my aunt Nila, who is more like a sister, and when I talk about her extensively in the book, she came and she rescued me and she kind of moved everything. She just got some newspaper and. Wiped everything to the side and at least rescued me, and then told me to go away and never come back, <laughs> which kind of worked for the next two days. And then I was kind of sheepishly, you know, scurrying two around. Two days, <laughs> yeah. Padma's book "Love, Loss, and What We Ate" is available at your local bookseller place. Go get it; it's really, really good. Next up, we're gonna hop in our time machines and go way, way back to our fifth episode when we were still itty bitty, teeny tiny little podcast babies, wobbling around, waiting on our bones to form and waiting on our skulls to harden, <laughs> and the soft spot to go away. <laughs> I could go on this with this metaphor forever. Today, Hannah Georgia sits right behind me and the rest of the pod squad at BuzzFeed. But way back in April of 2015, she was freelancing for the internet, and she had just written this beautiful, beautiful essay along with Safi Holland Farah called "Everything You Know About East African Women Is Wrong." We'll be sure to put Hannah and Safi's essay in our newsletter, which you should sign up for if you haven't already, because it's really, really, really good. To sign up, go to BuzzFeed.com/slash/anotherround/slash/newsletter. So I, I don't know. I kind of wanted to start with like maybe an even more broader question, like how did you come to your feminism? Ooh, yeah. It took me a long time to identify with the word feminism itself,、um, mm. but I feel like the way that I came to feminism as a concept or sort of as a way of understanding the world was kind of cliched. It's through my mom.、Um, I saw my、yeah. mom grow up and sort of hustle and make things work and build、mm. things with her friends and just kind of make magic where the, where it felt like there was nothing,、um, where we you know dealt with sort of the immigrant. Situations where you don't really know like the context of this country, and it doesn't quite、um, know how to make sense of you. And so I saw this woman who didn't have a context、mm-hmm. um, create a world where I could thrive, and I was like, "That's beautiful to me." And that's、um, sort of how I learned the power of women 
in general was through her. Mm. Really quickly, can we get like a little bit of background on like your family life and where you're from? Because yeah. I know that we know you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm not too <laughs> sure that our listeners have had the pleasure yet. Yeah. So I grew up in Southern California. Um, both of my parents came here from Ethiopia in the early 1980s. And so I've been back to Ethiopia a couple of times, but I've grown up here. So I've had, I kind of grew up in what felt like two different worlds at times, sort of mm. grew up in the Ethiopian community and that very, um, that context that felt like we really wanted to preserve our culture. Um, and then also had to grow up as a kid in America. So like deal with all the cultural things associated with that. Is there, and this is just a question strictly for me because I know nothing <laughs> of California. It is a foreign land. Is there a large Ethiopian population in California? Yes, yes uh, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably L.A., where I'm from, New York, Maryland, Virginia, the DMV, as we horribly say, yeah. uh, and like maybe like Minneapolis are how random are the like and sort Texas. of and Texas Weirdly. are like the big hmm. Ethiopian migrant clumps. Yes. Yeah. I I'm, once saw Injera at a 7-Eleven in D.C. Oh, <laughs> so that, that speaks to the very believable. <laughs> yeah. Believe it. Just the prevalence of us there. I feel like Ethiopians and Eritreans in different pockets of the country all have different sort of. Uh, ways of being and ways of interacting with Americanness, um, and so that's been something that's in- been interesting to see as I've moved like out of my parents' house um, mm. and sort of moved around the country a little bit, just to see how that changes too. So this essay sort of began as a Twitter conversation. Yeah, tell um, me about that. Like, what was the conversation like, and why did did it start? Yeah, so my friend Safi tweeted. Um, so the first tweet in the hashtag East African Feminism um, that she started was about her facilitating a conversation with herself, mm. and she was like, "Join if you wanna." Um, And so I saw her talking about that and I was like, this is great. I've never had a forum to think about these things or to sort of untangle some of the messiness of this. And so I joined in, a bunch of other people joined in. And before we knew it, it was almost this like East African cipher of sorts, just talking about... um, East African cipher? (laughs) (laughs) Should be an annual event at least. Yo. (laughs) So we started talking about all these things um, and people just chimed in with what they felt like they had learned, what they wanted to see, um, and where where we might be able to build in the future. And that felt like a really beautiful space. And we didn't really know whether it would be an ongoing series or what it would be. Um, but Safi and I just kept talking about it mm. for a long time. And I went to Ethiopia in from December to January and came back. And we were like, we need to write about this. Um, and we need to do it together, kind of both to honor the way that we both took part in this conversation and to honor the way that our foremothers built collective um, mm. brilliance and collective knowledge. And so we want to be able to model that in the writing, too. There's an interesting place East African women have in popular imagination mm. and the black imagination in America, mm-hmm. especially in rap lyrics. Mm. <laughs> Young East African right. girl. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> Clearly a lot for me to take in. It don't make sense. Young East African girl. You too busy fucking with your other man. I was trying to put you on game, put you on a plane, take you and your mama to the motherland. I could do it. Maybe one day. Like, I know that before I even knew that, like, Ethiopia was a place, I knew about Ethiopians yeah, yeah, yeah. because of rap music. <laughs> it's wild. It's crazy, right? Wow. Yeah. Um, there's a way that sometimes it's just East African, the umbrella term. Sometimes it's Ethiopian women names specifically. Yeah. Um, but what I found that's, like, really uncomfortable about that experience is that rappers and I think other folks in general, but rappers in particular, will name, like, these really specific features as yeah. being, like, endemic to all of East Africa, which, A, is false, mm-hmm. and, B, they're all they're all the features that are, you know, like, light skin, loosely curled hair, yeah. like, thin noses. Quote-unquote good hair. Right, Quote right, unquote. right. Like, mm-hmm. what does that even mean? Now it's time for a man who has put immigrants in the spotlight like nobody else has this year. And I think everybody knows who I'm probably talking about. 
How does a bastard Not Donald Trump, it's the other guy. <laughs> dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor. Grow up to be a hero and a scholar. We are clearly talking about none other than the one and only Lynn Manuel Miranda, actor, director, musician, etc. 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 You know who he is. He doesn't need an introduction, so I'm not gonna introduce him anymore. Take it away. When did you realize that whiteness was a thing or when did you realize that you were not white? Oh, so early. I mean, again, so I went to Hunter, which is this like magnet school. It's a public school, but it's a school for nerds. Like you have to pass tests to get in. And I got in in kindergarten. Mm. So I went from a nursery school in the 150s to literally my name changing. Like I went from Ling Manuel to Lin because mm. I couldn't take people mangling Ling Manuel. I was just call me Lin. That's yeah. easier. So I like the switching of like Spanish to English and English to Spanish and slang changing happened when I was really young. Mm-hmm. Um, and in retrospect, I'm grateful for it because I can kind of hang wherever. But yeah, that's probably where, I mean, it was literally just teachers and students who couldn't pronounce my name yeah we learned to code switch so early yeah absolutely. so so early yeah i have remember being the translator for any latinos that were came into our life on the upper east side whether mm-hmm. that's like the nanny who speaks spanish to me but speaks english to the kids she mm-hmm. takes care of yeah. when we're playing at her house mm-hmm. to i remember once being the translator for the coco helado guy because a kid wanted to ask if a stain was going to come out I mean, like, can you ask him if this will come out if uh-huh. I, and i'm like oh, all right i'm the fucking go to tra- i'm the spanish <laughs> language translator here on the upper east on 94th and park oh, if man. only you had charged for your services back then listen i know i, went, I, I never had a very <laughs> capitalist <laughs> mindset <laughs> so your dad is luis a miranda yeah. jr yeah he worked for mayor ed koch he's a founder and former president of the hispanic federation yeah and you worked in his office even wrote some jingles for political ads i've I learned did. <laughs> i did i would write i didn't write jingles it wasn't like i was writing i like ike or like things people <laughs> sang i was writing like the background music for commercials so, oh, so you were my, da- my dad would say hey i have a sharpton spot i need like 60 seconds of jazz smooth mm. jazz under the political message is going to be on wbls because if it's sharpton you gotta have smooth gotta jazz, have smooth jazz. <laughs> when that's the music to the station is gonna be on <laughs> and uh and remember writing like hopeful latin music for like elliot spitzer's spanish language spots wow mm. and that was like how i paid the rent he was uh-huh. like okay you want a career in music okay well here's you know word write write these jingles so uh-huh. that was what i did how do you feel like that background especially like watching politics happen through your dad like informs your work now? You know, it's funny. It's I'd, I'd never really considered it until I started writing this show. Mm. Um, one, I'm allergic. Like, I'm just, you're never going to see me run for anything because <laughs> I'm just, I was, I've, like, that was, you know, I think if I was a butcher's son, I wouldn't want to be a butcher. You know, it's just the mm-hmm, thing. Yeah. Like, when your parents do it, you're like, ugh. It expresses itself mostly in that song room where it happens, where it's, it's all sort of ambition and, mm. you know, so much happens in deals between people like yeah. the, the things we vote for are very rarely the things that matter <laughs> right, um, right. we can vote to get the people in the room mm-hmm. but it's the conversation in the room and we're not a part of that mm-hmm. and don't kid yourselves and think that you are you can put pressure <laughs> yeah. on that conversation you but you're things. not in that room i didn't even realize i knew that until i knew it it was funny uh governor cuomo came to see the show and he said i can tell you learned politics at like a kitchen table oh, wow. like, because the stuff is very 
it's not political in a capital P sense. It's just sort of like, this is how it works. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing these two guys once at a function my dad was at, congratulating themselves for like just totally fucking over a different guy, being like, oh my God. <laughs> Wait, d- did you hear what he said? And, and he didn't know we were going to fuck him today. Um, like, no. and, and just being like, that's politics. Mm. So it's just like Veep. <laughs> it's kind of like Veep. You know, we, we, in, our, in our hearts, it's West Wing. Uh, in reality, yeah, it's, it's somewhere between West Wing and Veep. Yes. So we learned a little bit about Baby Lynn. And now Baby Lynn has a Baby Lynn of his own. He does. He is adorable from what we can see. We've never seen his face. Yeah, but I'll he's, all his face. I imagine he's just surrounded by music all the time. He loves the Kendrick. He bounces to the Kendrick. <gasps> okay. Parenting um, done right. I had a phase where I was just playing him. When he was in the jumper, he's too big for the jumper. He's actually walking around now. But when mm. he was in the jumper, I would just play all the loudest Busta Rhyme songs I could. Because, <laughs> like, give me some more. Like, to see a baby dancing to give me some more is really the most joyous thing you'll ever see in your life. One of my favorite things is when you tweet things your son thinks you look like oh boy <laughs> my favorite personally is cat williams <laughs> got a light skin friend look like cat williams got a dark skin friend look like Precisely. cat williams yeah that started it was um the cat williams thing started when chris jackson posted like one of the first pictures from hamilton one of his friends was like cat williams in your play and, like, i just thought it was so funny and so dead on in a weird way especially when i really let the hair flow um there's something particularly pimplicious about that oh my God. That I just, I embrace it. Pimpalicious. Yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining Alexander Hamilton go, it's all pimping, pimping. <laughs> there are the thrilling moments where he sees you on TV and goes, dada. And then he looks at Ray Romano and goes, dada. <laughs> and then he looks at the Lego man and goes, dada. And you go, oh, this is not about me. He <laughs> sees you in everything. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's very sweet. So this question is a little, it's it's a little heavier. Yeah. Um, but what will you teach him about women and white people? Oh, gosh. It, you know, that's a great question. Um, there, there's two conversations I remember from being a kid that jump out at me, which I guess help me answer this question. I remember coming home and asking my family if we were white hmm. because it's often presented as binary. And, you know, hmm. Puerto Ricans are like literally the gumbo. I mean, we're yeah. gumbo. We're everything. And so they were like, no. I'm like, but I'm the same color as like half the kids in my school. And they were like, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. You're not. And here's why. And, you know, I think from then on, it was like Puerto Rican flags out. And <laughs> nice. like, you're going to learn. Uh, so that will be that conversation when that happens. I mean, I'm excited for my son because he's got incredible female role models, starting with my wife, who, you know, was bored of being a scientist and became a lawyer. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) She is going to, you know, she should run for president. And, you know, my, you know, my mother and and just all the the women in our lives. I grew up in a house with with my sister and my mother and uh, the woman who raised us, like just strong women, like throughout. So that was I'm not worried about that. I think he's going to be all right. That's dope. So this sort of touches on another question that we had. Coworker and friend of ours tweeted what I think is the best tweet on earth ever. (laughs) Okay. No shade to you and your tweets. You're really, really good at Twitter. (laughs) But she tweeted, behind every woke man is an exhausted feminist you need to thank. So good, right? Um, You, we would, we would, we would refer to you as woke. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Sleepy but woke. Sleepy but woke. Um, So who do we thank? Who do we thank for your wokeness? Oh, gosh. Um, You probably have to thank my mother for it. I mean, 
my mom's psychologist, my mom was a single mom for a while. My, my, my sister's actually my half sister. When my parents met, my sister was about six and my mom was diagnosed with thyroid cancer when she was like 19 years old, oh my God. went through that. She, she basically that happened. And then she said, Oh, I might die. Had an affair with one of her teachers. Yes. Mom, Olivia life had a girl. baby and was like, well, I'm probably going to die. So I'm having this baby. And yes. it was, and she always says it's such a crazy thing, <laughs> but she says it was the year Roe v. Wade happened. Mm. So she goes, so she goes, so she says to my sister, honey, I chose you. Oh. <laughs> I chose you and I had the right to choose you. Aww. 1973. Yes, um, mom. And like literally working at Howard Johnson's, working like six waitress jobs, put herself through school, like finished her doctorate. That She, she met my dad uh, when she was getting her degree. Just did all of the jobs so that we could, you mm-hmm. know, go to school and not worry about it. My parents are like one of the few sets of parents that are still together. And I think it's because they both work. Mm-hmm. Like they work in really different fields and then they come home at the end of the day and are genuinely happy to see each other. Like, I don't think I could have dated an actor or a writer. Like, it's great to come home and we don't talk about, like, the stuff that you're dealing with all day. Yeah. I want to backtrack a little bit. Was it weird to find out or hear that your mom had an affair? Yeah, I didn't figure it out until way later. (laughs) So you figured it out versus being told? No, no, I was told. But I mean, just like the the, the thing of it. I mean, but it's... Mostly, I remember when I heard about it, just thinking about how scared she must have been. Like, yeah. God, mm-hmm. to be young and dealing with uh, what could have been a death sentence and also a child on the way. And she was just so strong throughout it. I wasn't scandalized. I just had this surge of empathy of like, mm-hmm. you know, my life's been actually really calm compared to even what my sister went through. So yeah. it's um, I'm, you know, the beneficiary of all of that uh-huh. struggle. I don't know how I would feel. First, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, you have sex. (laughs) And then like by myself, I'd be like, oh, no, my parents, my parents make no secret of it. They're they're all over each other still. Really? (laughs) Oh, oh, love it. I remember once my my dad was he's going to kill me for telling the story. Yes. Um, (laughs) I was watching there there was a phase where VH1 was like rerunning American Bandstand and I was I forget was, uh, I think Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive came on. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm bored with the song. And I was about to change the channel. <laughs> My dad came in from the other room. He goes, don't you ever <laughs> change the channel of that song. You were conceived to that song in 1979. Okay. I was like, oh my you gosh. forced me to picture you having sex. To Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. Wow. That's a very interesting, interesting song to put dad. on in the boom boom room. Yeah. Huh. First, I was the afraid boom, I was petrified. Boom, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you the know. boom boom room where it wow. happens. Wow. Now we're going to hear from actress slash writer slash opera singer slash performer slash figure skater slash who knows how many other things. Miss Uzo Aduba, you know her and love her from Orange is the New Black, but she's literally good at everything is a thing that we learned in her interview. One of the things that stuck out to me most about her interview was the beautiful, beautiful, touching story about her smile and the conversation that she had with her mom about it. You say in many interviews that the day that you learned that you got the role for Orange is the New Black, like earlier that very day, you had decided to quit 
acting. Yeah. And a lot of that was because of um, the, just like, there's just like not a lot of roles for people who look like us, yeah. right? Yes, correct. And I was very struck that rather than be like, I should assimilate somehow, I should be more of what these people want, you were just like, nah, I'm just going to go be a lawyer. You know, like, yeah, it seems that the thought of like assimilating or like changing anything about you was like never, ever, ever an option. Mm -mm. Is that true? Never, ever. Not in my adult life. Mm -hmm. No, I think like the struggle. I mean, whatever. We live in a society, a patriarchal society where there are ideas that are thrust at us at every walking path of how a girl, a woman is meant to look. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's I was not, you know, insulated from that. Um, and then to layer on top of that, I think the fact that I also possess very African features. Mm -hmm. At a young age, I went through those wars, as girls do. And then I think I had that added layer of like, oh, well, not only am I, you know, a, a, a black girl, but I'm also like, I carry all this other stuff with the gap mm. teeth and the, the nose and the color, the color and all this stuff. And... That really kind of stopped for me somewhere right around like high school. Mm. Now, in hindsight, I recognize that my mom was constantly like she had a hand on me, like was really mm. like this thing you feel is not correct. Mm. Like I must have been radiating off of me. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? That yeah, especially would, as like a teen tween. Right. Those, yes. those years. Ooh, those, those years, years are radiating tough. everywhere. Radiating. <laughs> it's really, really tough. And I was, you know, and you were like, I'm not small enough. I'm too tall. I'm not realizing it's like too tall. So in 10 <laughs> years are going to be a model is basically all these things, you know, but you don't show appreciation for when you're young. So what was the transition? Well, for me, I don't, I just remember like my mother, for example, with my gap, I wanted braces like a crazy person wants gay braces. You know, I just wanted them. I kept asking constantly, constantly, constantly. She was like, no. And I remember her sitting me down and she was like, don't you know you have on your cool gap? She says her maiden, my mom's maiden name. She's like, you have on your cool gap. She's like, all the people in my family, they have gap also. I was the only one born without it. Don't you know in, in Nigeria, gap is a form of beauty. It's a form of, of wisdom. For you to close this thing is for you to close yourself from who you are. Don't ask me again for this thing. And I was like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> all right, lady. Like, so mad. You know, and that's sort of the, and I, that's not to say that, like, she said that, and I was like, you're right, mom. Like, I was like, I was like that's right. What's for dinner? Like, I was like, you know, like, it wasn't that, but mm. it was, she said that, I remember. I still had a position on it. But then I remember distinctly, I went to get my senior portrait pictures for high school taken. The photographer, I will just, I, I have to do the work to find this man and just send him a card because it like really changed my life. He was changing film, changing chips, whatever. And we would be talking in between shots and I'd be laughing and be like, ha ha ha, ha bright smiley, right? And like wide, you can see my gap. And then as soon as he would point the camera to shoot, I would close my mouth and have this like, some mm. fake smile on my mm. face that was hiding mm. my gap. And I have so many pictures of myself like that growing up where my mom would always be like, ha, smile, Uzo, uh. smile. And I'd be like, mm -mm, that Aww. gap might be beautiful in Nigeria, but we live in Medville. Right. Like, that's not <laughs> happening. You know? And um, the, so going back to the photographer, he was like, how come every time 
you smile when I'm taking a picture. You close your mouth like that. And, you know, I wasn't answering right away, sort of being a little bit cagey. And he was like, why, why? And finally I said, you know, I don't like my gap. And he had his camera and he was, you know, changing the film. And he just said to me, he was like, I think you have a beautiful smile. And it's not the first time I'd ever heard that. My mom had been saying that for umpteenth years. But for some reason, when he said it, I heard it for in a new way for the first time. And it's not like that moment. Again, I changed my smile because if you look at the yearbook picture, it's a closed mouth smile. But I because we took those pictures the summer before senior year, I did that year. I remember I just started smiling all the time Aww. in sh- pictures. Like I just started smiling and I'd be saying to myself, I was like, I have a beautiful smile. I have a beautiful smile. And so like now whenever I'm even doing carpets and stuff, like it's sometimes hard for me to like smize and be like, because <laughs> I'm like, I want to smile because I feel like I'm making up for lost smiles. There were so many years that little girl did not because she felt like she was less than. Mm-hmm. And she is not. Aww. She is just as worthy. And so, no, not in my adulthood. I'm, I, I'm on this sort of train and have been for some time now. I refuse to allow anybody to rob me of who I am. That was beautiful. That was gorgeous. (laughs) So I don't know if you've been watching Aziz Ansari's new uh, Netflix show, Master of None. So there's this episode, the parents episode, which is basically all about immigrant kid angst and how you feel like you don't even really know your parents and all the sacrifices they've made. You know, my parents moved to a town where there were very few people of color. Mm. And when I say very few, I think the number could be counted on one hand, Mm. not even, you know, a hundred people. That's a very few. I'm talking maybe five families altogether (laughs) at at best. And they all know each other. Absolutely. And they all (laughs) gossip together. And they all know each other. They met in the grocery store. My parents, particularly my mother, fought the very very hard road of ensuring her children's safety Mm. and equality. These are people who came from a country in the midst of a civil war who are not about to let their dreams for their children be any way railroaded because of someone's racial prejudice. Mm. You know what I mean? That's just not going to happen. And my parents also instilled in us a very, very clear understanding of who we are as people and that you are not to allow anybody to second guess or make you feel inadequate or insignificant in any single way just based on the color of your skin. That's not going to happen. And I think that training, I think my mom was (laughs) exceptionally good at training our community through her own level of confidence and strength, that it wasn't going to be tolerated, mm. that everybody had to get on board. Um, as a child of Nigerian immigrants, are there have you like later as an adult like learned some like wild stories your parents have gone through? My parents have gone through. I mean, surviving a war. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's definitely. I mean, they're right there. I mean, my. I mean, my mom has lived five lives that I'm not even certain one of them, the strength of 10 men could survive. Mm. Um, But she, you know, I learned growing up, I remember my mom had polio. And yeah, and was told she would never walk again. She did. Mm. Was told she was a cripple and that she would not be able to play sports. Not only was that not true, she went on to go and play 
tennis in college and went on to become the women's singles West African champion what? in tennis. What? Go um, ahead, And I learned that about her. A t- story I thought was entirely untrue my whole life or somewhat <laughs> fabricated until she came back from Nigeria with the trophy. <laughs> <laughs> Like, see, see. I got receipts. Like, I was like, oh, it did have like, those are stories. You know, that's definitely mm. um stories like that. And you start to learn like about like just like the mountains that she's managed to climb on that crippled leg, quote unquote. Mm. Mm. You're like, wow, I can't even I hope to live up to be a tenth of the woman you are. Oh, it was beautiful. And finally, this episode would not be complete without somebody buying around. So, immigrant kids, this is for you. Take it away, Hev. So, I've been talking with my therapist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Lately, I've been talking a lot with her about families. And I realized that I attribute a lot to being an immigrant what could just be my particular family structure. (laughs) I'm just like, you know, it's just immigrant stuff. That awareness is important. It is. And I'm just like, more and more I'm thinking about what do I attribute randomly to immigrant stuff versus what I think is just like unique to the people I know. Right. But in general, I want to buy around for immigrant kids because I just feel like we have so much angst. Tell me about immigrant kid angst. One of the things I think as an immigrant is like this, there's this, immigrant existential angst that comes from the awareness that your life could have turned out completely differently Mm -hmm. arbitrarily Mm -hmm. respect i'm not saying other people don't come to that realization for other reasons like Mm -hmm. black people in america come to that realization for a lot of reasons like when people you know are killed by the police arbitrarily (laughs) and they're law-abiding citizens Mm -hmm. you know depressing shit but like i was born in ethiopia but i often think about the person i would have been if my family didn't like all move to america like who would have been like heaven in ethiopia Mm. with the resources we had then and like the people we would have been because it's like every single immigrant adult that i know was like an engineer or a pilot or a Mm -hmm. doctor in their home country and then they come to america and they're taxi drivers and service workers and they have to deal with annoying white people all day (laughs) and like you know that shit i just i just think about like all the alternative timelines of like the people we could have been right Mm -hmm. Like, if you live in a third world country, and I use that phrase because y'all came up with that, not y'all, but they they did. (laughs) Don't put that on me. She didn't come up with that. (laughs) Part of it is like there's like a small tiny movement of like uh, ethnic studies people who want to reclaim third world. Mm -hmm. So I I use it for that reason, but also because... uh, oh, y'all want to call us the third world? I'm going to remind you of that every fucking day. Yeah. Oh, remember when you called us the third world? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we do not share this fucking planet. Right. Oh, listen. Anyways, mm-hmm. sometimes you just got to embarrass people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just got to embarrass people. But I really want to give a shout out to immigrant kids because you just grow up with all this angst and this burden of like, you cannot think of all the things that could have happened and then like also be a functional human, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? That's like, true. you're thinking about like, oh, in a different timeline, I would have probably been like, a jailed political blogger for having an opinion. Right. Oh, that's cool. I'm five. Mm. <laughs> Why do I know that? <laughs> you know what the blog is. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just blog know question. all the different ways you could have lived and died. And it's like, your parents are like, yeah, we traveled 50 miles through a desert to get mm-hmm. you here. And it's just like, oh, word, now I have dumb problems. <laughs> Why? Why is that happening? So it's just like, it's such a peculiar angst. You are aware of the whims of the universe. And it's like, there's a lot at stake for you if you're an immigrant kid. 
Anyways, all that is to say, I see you, kids with the angst, immigrant kids. This one's for you. Yay. Round on me. Aw, I love that. I love that. Snap. First and foremost, we would like to thank all of these incredible people who gave their time and their stories and their energy to another round. That includes Miss Stacey Marie Ishmael, Anil Dash, Jenny Zane, Padma Lakshmi, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Hannah Georges, and Uzo Aduba. Yay! Thank you for talking to us. We will never, ever, ever forget it. And of course, thank you to the Pod Squad. Yay! Woo-woo-woo-woo! This episode was lovingly produced by Julia Ferlin with editorial oversight by Eleanor Kagan and production support from Chiquita Pascal and Meg Kramer. Thank you to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios for all his time and help. Thank you to our in-house musicians, Miss Jean Gray. You can follow her on Twitter at Jean Greasy. And Don Will of the Almighty Tanya Morgan. You can follow him on Twitter at Don Will. Our newsletter this week is going to be chock full of relevant goodies from all of the people in the stories that you've heard from today. So if you haven't signed up, what are you doing? Why do you deny yourself heaven? What are you doing with yourself? Go sign up. You can do so at BuzzFeed.com slash another round slash newsletter. And while you're there on the Internet, go to shop.buzzfeed.com and get yourself some another round merch. We got mugs. We got shirts. You got to wear a shirt to go outside, which is sad to say. But hey, if you have to wear clothes make it in another round themed shirt huh yeah you can email us at another round at buzzfeed.com you can twitter us at another round you can facebook us at another round um drink some water take your freaking meds this is a note to myself that i need to take my meds i've been doing a shitty job of that lately but i'm gonna get better call your person floss re-up on the little things that you need in your life because something that i really really hate is i mean I'm not special in this. Everybody hates this. You go, you use the bathroom, you're looking around for toilet paper, and you don't have any more because your lazy ass forgot to pick up some more while you were out. Stop being lazy. Re-up on the TP. Get some floss, lotion, deodorant. You don't have to be without these things. You just have to make a mental note to stock up. And now I'm going to CVS to buy some toilet paper. (laughs) Bye!